Good evening to you. Genesis chapter 4. Tonight is where we pick it up. Heading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. In chapters 4 and 5, we enter into what is known as the antediluvian age, and it's just kind of a fancy word that is attached to that period in human history that falls between the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and then the flood uh, of the world at the time of Noah. And so uh, hold on to your hats and glasses here tonight because as we go through chapters 4 and 5, we're going to cover uh, 1,600 years in in human history in just uh, two short chapters. And Adam knew his wife, and the knowing your wife in the Old Testament sense is a physical sexual relationship. And so uh, he knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, a son, and said in the naming of her son, I have acquired a a man from the Lord. And so uh, Adam and Eve have this child. They name him Cain. His name uh, means gotten or acquired. Uh, from the Lord, it would seem that as Eve now has uh, this child, that she is hoping that she has acquired the Savior that God has uh, spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman that is going to come forth and uh, bring mankind out from under the uh, curse of, of sin and of the fall. So uh, no harm in thinking that. On her part, she doesn't know that it's going to be thousands of years before the seed of the woman, Jesus, comes forth uh, to fulfill that prophecy. Her hope is that it's going to be fulfilled immediately. Now, you put yourself in Adam and Eve's place, uh, and, and you can under, I mean, we can understand it even in our fallenness, but put yourself in, in their place where they have known the perfect beauty of Eden and now because of their sin they're out and they see the consequences in their own personal lives in their uh, physical you know well-being the earth and and the curse upon the earth and and all of these things they're dealing with the consequences of the fall and you can imagine how they would want this thing to be turned around as quickly as possible that somehow this seed of of the woman would come forth as as soon as could be and and get us back to the garden of Eden or or something uh, better and so his birth Cain as he's born into the world Both his parents are filled with an anticipation about his life, uh, an excitement about the potential of his life. They're going to be very, very disappointed uh, in his life and what it is that he brings into the human condition. Uh, But they begin, I mean, he's going to absolutely break his his parents' heart. uh, But to begin with, they're filled with hope. So at the birth of, of Cain, Adam and Eve became the first people in human history to raise Cain. So, I mean, there it is right there. A little Bible humor for you. You know, we'll try and refrain from these cheap attempts at humor. I'm so ashamed of myself. 
they do that stuff on the, the Muppet thing at Disney World or whatever, you know. So I should be above it, but I'm not. So anyway, we leave Cain here now. And, and she bore again, this time, uh, a brother, Cain's brother, uh, a boy by the name of Abel. Now, Abel's name means vanity. It means vapor or emptiness. So it would appear that by the time uh, Abel is born into the world that Eve has a sense. She seems to be naming the children. And uh, that's always a wise thing. Well, anyway. But um, so she's, I mean, the moms are going to be calling them all the time. So, but, but uh, no doubt Adam has involvement in this. And uh, now they seem to be having a sense that this seed of the woman, this Messiah, is not going to come uh, terribly quickly. And again, as they consider the condition of their life now in the fallen world in comparison to what it was in the Garden of Eden, I mean, they just look at it and say, this is emptiness, this is a vapor and, uh, and, and vanity compared to what it once was. And, and so, so often you would name the children, you know, based upon some circumstance surrounding their life or some hope, you know, that you would place upon them. And so the naming of Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, so he's kind of a rancher or a sheep herder. And uh, Cain was a tiller of the ground, so he is a farmer. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So he's going to bring an offering to the Lord. He's not an atheist at all. Uh, he knows that God exists. He wants to please God, uh, at least outwardly it looks like it, with some kind of an offering. So he brings the best of the fruit of the ground, vegetation. He brings a vegetable uh, kind of offering to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. He brings an animal sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And we're told that the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now the word respect there for saying he did not respect Cain and his offering, the word respect means he wouldn't even look at it. He wouldn't even look at this thing that, that Cain was offering uh, up uh, to, to him. Now I think that uh, it's very, very important to properly understand this passage that uh, uh, in, in order to do that, it's, it's vital that we understand that prior to the giving of, of these sacrifices, when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to the Lord, God had already communicated to them the sacrifice that he wanted. And obviously he had asked for an animal sacrifice. But here is Cain, he's a farmer, and well, why shouldn't I offer, be able to offer vegetables to God and have it mean the same thing? God makes commandments how he wants to make commandments. And sometimes there are reasons that he makes known to us why he does things the way that he does, and other times he doesn't reveal it to us. He just tells us what he wants, and he tells us what pleases him, and, uh, and what pleases him is always uh, best for us. If we look at this and just say, wow, I mean, you're just kind of reading through the Bible, and, and I'll tell you why I base this, this commentary on, on that. I'm telling you right now, but you read through it, and you could come to the conclusion that uh, God likes ranchers better than farmers. 
uh, or that he uh, can never be approached with a grain offering and uh, always with an animal offering. But we're going to see, you know, in a few years when we get to the law, uh, in, that God accepted both uh, sacrifices that were uh, grain offerings and also accepted uh, the, uh, the offerings of, of animals. And so he's, he's not down on one or the other and all, but he had let them know how it is that he wanted to be approached. The whole the Holy Spirit's commentary on all of this is in Hebrews chapter 11, where he declares that by faith, Hebrews 11:4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. And so in this passage in Hebrews, Abel is commended for his faith, uh, not for sacrifice, uh, uh, not just purely for an animal sacrifice. He is commended for his faith, a faith that he demonstrated in bringing an animal sacrifice to God. The sacrifice that he offered here isn't the big deal. His faith is, is the big deal here. One of the interesting things about Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith in the Bible. You've got the, the men and women that are the heroes of faith all through the law and prophets listed there in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, there's a definition of faith that's given there. And then uh, the Holy Spirit speaks about how faith was revealed through the lives of these men and women. Not in, in, not in one single man or woman that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11 did they ever have to guess what the will of God was in their lives. Sometimes we think a step of faith is not knowing what God's will is for my life, guessing what it is, and then taking a step of faith. But that's not a step of faith biblically. It's a step of presumption or whatever we might want to call it. But God doesn't leave us to kind of guess what it is that His, His will is. He reveals His will to us. And then the faith comes in on whether I'm going to obey what He's told me to do in the face of the circumstances. Now that's characteristic of every single person in Hebrews chapter 11. Not one of them guessed the will of God. They were told the will of God, and now would they obey it as a demonstration of, of their uh, faith. And so evidently God made it very clear to both Cain and Abel what kind of sacrifice uh, he was to be offered in this instance, how he was to be approached, and, and uh, that that was to be on the basis of animal sacrifice. We're going to see in just another verse or two where Cain's going to become very, very angry with God related to all of this. And then God, in verses 6 and 7, you might make note of it, uh, speaks to him declaring, uh, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, this, this thing that Cain has done, uh, it's not like he doesn't know what well is. It's not like he doesn't know what the right thing to do is. He's not guessing. He knows what the right thing is to do. He didn't do it, and now if he wants to make things right, he ought to do the right thing. So it's just disobedience on his part. God wanted in this instance to be approached on the basis of an animal sacrifice and one person obeyed him, and the other uh, failed to uh, 
obey him. So God loves farmers as much as he loves uh, ranchers. It's just one obeyed and one disobeyed. Now here you have uh, in this the division of man really into two camps all the way through human history. Cain is a type of one kind of person. Abel is a type of another kind of person through the Bible. So this next two minutes or so, I'm not just talking to be talking about this. It, it has an implication related to our understanding of of the scriptures. So you have these two camps of people. You have people who are like Abel. They approach God on his terms, on the basis of a faith, on the basis of obeying the way that God has told us as men and women that we can approach him. And it's very, very simple. God told Abel what he wanted, how he was to be approached, what would please him. Abel obeyed God, God accepted him. And it's just the same thing that we're called to do with Jesus. We've been told that God can only be approached through Christ. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, and this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And so if we will obey God in approaching him by believing and receiving, believing in his Son, trusting in his Son for salvation, receiving him into our life, then we are accepted by God. The Bible says, as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the authority to be called the sons of God. It all happens just by obeying the simple dictates of God, the the recipe and, and commands of God. Then you have those that are like Cain who disregard God's instruction about how he's uh, to be approached. And uh, so they disobey God and they are determined to approach God on their own terms. And they look at God and say, I don't care what you've done and what little channel or what road or how narrow the path is that you want me to approach you. I'll approach you how I want to approach you. I'll bring you what pleases me. I don't care what pleases you, and you'll accept it and be happy with it. I mean, that's somebody that's lost a little perspective in life, wouldn't you say? But that's the way that, that Cain is, what, what he's doing here in, in all of this. And, and I'll approach you how I want, with what I want. I don't care what you've said, and you're just going to have to be happy with that, God. And then Cain and those that are like him, they're shocked and upset when they're informed by God that that, is, that way is not acceptable uh, to God at all. And boy, there are a lot of Cains in the world today. I'm, going to come to God, I'm not going to come to God through Jesus. I'm going to come to him by some way that I choose, and God's just going to have to accept that. God doesn't accept that. That feels good to say. God doesn't accept that. We're thinking, I've got a bunch of hand ringers today. Uh, you know, trying to make God so pleasing to everyone. God is God. And we're mere puny men and, and women. And, and God does not accept that. We do not approach Him on our terms and our ways. We approach Him on His terms, and we are thankful that there are terms to approach Him on any terms at all. People get all, you know, uptight about things. And, oh, the, the, it's such a one way to God and a narrow way to God. And, it, and how can it just be one? Be thankful there's a way. That's how I see it. Be thank, I don't deserve a way. So if I don't deserve it, I know you don't deserve it. So I don't have any problem believing it for you too. You just be thankful there's a way. And, uh, and, but Cain and those that are like him, they, they don't like, like that. And, and so uh, here is Cain. 
Again, as I said, he's no atheist. Uh, He wants a relationship with God, but not enough to want it on God's terms. Uh, He only wants a relationship with God when it's on his uh, terms. And and, uh, as John again said, and this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. All of this is very serious business. What Cain is doing here is very serious business. His deliberate rebellion against God's way of approaching God. And Cain may not think it's a big deal. And obviously he still thinks he's smarter than God, as we're going to see in the next couple of verses. But you know what's going to happen to Cain and the entire lineage of Cain? Every drop of his blood is going to be destroyed in the flood. Not one descendant of Cain survives the flood because he sets his whole generation on this course and this attitude toward God. Now notice how Cain responds uh, to uh, the, uh, you know, kind of rebuke or God not respecting his offering, verse 5. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He gets super mad at God and his countenance uh, falls. He's just filled with pity and now he's just going to pout. Now listen, the solution to sin... And the solution to being rebuked by God for my sin is not to get angry at God. If you ever get angry at God, just know you're wrong. Any of you ever been angry at God? Don't shout out. We're on another tape. There have been a couple times in all the years that I've walked with him, and I know I was wrong. It was just this thing, and it was so big, and so what, and I was frustrated, and all, and Lord, you know, and I mean, it's just right there, and I'm, I'm upset with him, but I knew I was wrong. I knew I wasn't seeing it clearly. I knew that just the passing of time, I'll see the wisdom in, in all of this, and of course, we do. But if I ever get in an argument with God on that basis, uh, I should never get in that kind of a place. But if I do, I'll at least always know that I'm wrong in, in that situation. So here he is, his countenance falls, he's downcast, he's filled with self-pity, and, and he's going to pout. And that's the condition that he's in. You know, now he's all sad and, and everything. And then notice what the Lord says to him in verse 6. Why are you angry? God knows everything, I'm not angry. Yeah, yeah, okay. So why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? I mean, God's watching the whole, uh, whole thing. And so God just plainly confronts his anger, confronts his, his fallen uh, countenance in, in this. And then notice in verse 7, it is the first counseling session in human history right here. And uh, I would say that 80% of all counseling sessions uh, fall into verse 7 right here. They, they never go this quick. Uh, just You can read that in about two and a half seconds. Uh, they always go longer than that, and necessarily so, because there's talking and getting a picture and all of that. But what you see right here is a typical solution to most, most kind of problems that we, that we run into. He says to Cain, if you do well... If you just do what's right here, will you not be accepted? Just do the right thing here, Cain. 
And, and if you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, you decide to continue in your disobedience, then sin lies at the door. And it's interesting, that word lies, it's a word that's used for an animal that's crouching, ready to pounce. It's a great way to look at sin. Great way to look at disobedience. Right outside your front door, just picture a lion crouched, ready to take you out when you open up the door. That's what his sin was going to do. He was either going to do what God said was the right thing to do, obey God, or that sin was going to have him for lunch. And he's not going to obey God, and that sin's going to eat him up and eat his lineage up uh, too. But God says, listen, just do the right thing and you'll be fine. If you don't do the right thing, this sin is going to destroy you. And it's as simple as that. He is a wonderful counselor. God is. And then he says, and its desire for this sin to, to control him and take over him is for you. It'll want to take over your life, but you should rule over it. You have the ability to obey me, Cain in this thing so there's no excuses if you don't this that you're either going to obey me or this sin of yours is going to kill you it'll be the death of you and and then and 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 now uh, but there's no reason for this to have a bad ending you should rule over it it's a very very i love i love it every time i read through the scriptures and i and i hit that particular uh passage so god gives him uh the warning there to be ruthless with this sin otherwise it's going to wipe him out now cain completely disregards uh, god's counsel here verse eight and uh now cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, he, Jesus spoke about the fact that when there's anger in our hearts, he's angry, isn't he? When, he's, when there's anger in our hearts, he says, God, Jesus said, you better take care of that because anger will turn into murder. I wonder if, if, we, if we canvassed the jails and the prisons in the United States of America, the whole world, and ask how many are in that are in, in there incarcerated for murder how many of it began with anger that they didn't deal with and then it, the situation escalated now and now they're they're incarcerated on death row uh, uh, for for murder and and so the hatred the bitterness against God he, he takes and he has the same thing against his brother and he rises up and and he kills him very very old story that's been repeated over and over again uh, through history it's interesting to notice that the first murder the first spilling of innocent blood in human history it was a religious murder that's how God talked about it Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 23 about the blood of righteous Abel and elsewhere it talks about Cain in the New Testament it talks about un, the unrighteousness of Cain and, and the shedding of, of this uh, blood so here you have a dispute over a religious issue it leads to murder where you have the self-righteous persecuting those who walk by faith and so Cain instead of admitting that he was wrong that uh, the problem that he had was really between him and God that the solution was not to pout not to get angry not to blame others but to obey God get right with God uh, repent of his rebellion and then move forward uh, in in life instead of doing that he takes and he chooses to murder Abel a child of God who walked by faith and obeyed God's commandments why why would he do that 
because Abel exposed him. And when you look at the unrighteous or the self-righteous persecuting the righteous, those who walk by faith all through human history, you see the one persecuting the other, the self-righteous persecuting the, the righteous that walk by faith. And why do they do it? Because the life of the righteous testifies to the fact that a life of obedience to God can be lived. And what that does is it removes an excuse for disobedience out of the life of the self-righteous or the disobedient. But rather than getting right with God themselves, which is the solution, so often they will choose to put out the light of the righteous because that life exposes the fact that they are in sin and rebellion against God by choice not because uh, they can't help it. And so always the persecution uh, goes on and it uh, happens today and, uh, and, and this is the way of Cain and the way of, uh, of, of Abel. Now notice that God then confronts uh, Cain. So I've got a second uh, appointment here. Now things are escalating quickly. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now it's not like God doesn't know where Abel is. He knows he's been murdered because he's going to talk about in a verse or so about the fact that his, his righteous innocent blood is speaking from the ground that he's been, he's been murdered. But he's giving Abel some room to confess his sin and get right without uh, having to be forced into a corner and confronted uh, by, by God. So he's still, God's still giving him room to do the right thing. And Cain said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And, and this I, I, I remember one time, my mom asked me, I think I was in late elementary school or early junior high or something like that, and she asked me about the, uh, where my twin brother was or something, and I thought I was really smart quoting the Bible, and I said, am I my brother's keeper? I didn't know I was quoting Cain at the time. You know, a little knowledge is dangerous, isn't it? You know, so, but, if, but he's, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And of course, the short answer is yes, as a matter of fact. The two great commandments are what? Love the Lord our God, as we sang already tonight with all of our heart our mind our soul and our strength and love our neighbor as ourself now you obey those two commands and do you have a dead man on the scene no the reason that Abel is dead is because of violation of both of those those commandments so but he, he comes back with this kind of thing he's bluffing now and lying I don't know where he is that's a lie am I my brother's keeper and God said what have you done the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I mean, you think, it, 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 we get so used to murder in the culture. Uh, and, and, and we give degrees to it, and I mean, there are all kinds of different things. And so much blood has spilled into the ground that we can forget that just the shedding of innocent blood on the part of one person is an affront to God. It's a big deal to God. And you think about how much blood through human history is crying out from the ground for vengeance. How much of Abel's blood, righteous blood, is crying out for vengeance related to the, the work of, of the Cain or the un, unrighteous. And, and it defiles the land. It defiles the, the ground on, uh, on this. And so God proceeds to curse 
uh, Cain for his sin. Uh, God isn't going to make uh, people just commit sin and then there's no penalty to it, no deterrence related to it. And, and so there, is, there are consequences to sin. And so he said in verse 11, Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And so two parts to the curse. Number one, this earth that you've been a farmer, the, the land's been good to you. It's been a way for you to provide for yourself and, and the land has cooperated with you. But because of what you've done to the earth and the spilling of innocent blood, the earth is no longer going to cooperate with you as a farmer. You're through as a farmer. And, uh, and, and so you won't be offering any of that stuff anymore. And, and then the second thing is now you're going to become a fugitive. Now you're going to become a, ba- a vagabond and, and you're going to become a, a, a wanderer. And so sin puts us on a path. The Bible teaches it all the way through. Sin puts us on a path that is cursed. Cain's sin, he still is not repentant. He still doesn't admit his wrong. And it puts him on a path that is cursed. Can I tell you tonight, if you're here tonight, by, for whatever reason, you've wandered in or whatever and couldn't afford the movies, but you wanted some air conditioning, so you went to a church on Sunday night, listen, that's I'd do that. So I'd, maybe nobody else is up above that. But, but anyway, you, you come in and... And you, you, uh, uh, the the life that you have in 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 sin and in wickedness and and wrongdoing and 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 all of this kind of stuff, and you know firsthand that the way of the transgressor, the way of sin, is hard. You can turn from that tonight. You can turn from that life tonight. It's just one decision, just like that, off of one path that's cursed and onto a path that is blessed and blessed forevermore by giving your heart to Christ tonight or if you already know him but you're backslidden getting back on on path here tonight the way it came is just misery it's just terrible terrible it's more than misery it's it's terrible it's an affront uh, to to God now so God lays out the consequences and notice what Cain says to the Lord he said my punishment my I my I me I I my punishment is greater than I can bear he doesn't he doesn't he has no conviction about murder all he cares about is his punishment this punishment is, is too heavy to bear. So here, you, you know, here you've got this, the start of a long line of, of people who are more concerned about the, the punishment that's meted out upon them than the anguish and the heartbreak that their crime has, commit, has, has produced in another human life or in another family or in the human condition. As I say, it's as old as Cain. And, and, uh, and so this is too much for me. That's asking. And I mean, you look at, uh, talk about a guy that has no perspective. What do you mean? Now you're going you're gonna to be a wanderer in the land and, uh, and, and you, you're not going to be able to be a farmer and, and all. You're getting off pretty easy. For a murderer, someone that's taken another human life innocently, but he doesn't see it that way. 
He, he, all he, he is so self-consumed, it's all about him, and how could God be so hard on him? Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I'll be hidden from your face, speaking of God's favor and, 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 and fellowship with God. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. I mean, if you, if you circle all the I, I, and me, and all through those two verses, there's a bunch. Uh, of them. His only concern is, is his own preservation. He's taken another life and now all he is is concerned about preserving his life. It's like, like somebody committing murder, going to prison and then and, and never repenting or confessing the crime or anything like that but then working day and night uh, to get new trials and new hearings and new all of this to get out from under the penalty. Uh, of it. It's really disgusting what he, what he does here. And he says, now the people that are going to find me, they're going to kill me. And, and well, who are these other people? The, the, these, are, these are all family members. Adam and Eve have continued to have children, and their children have children and all, and so things are moving forward in the human population. He says, listen, when, when the rest of the family finds out about this, somebody is just going to take me out on this. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain. Uh, uh, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain. We don't know what the mark is. Nobody knows what the mark is, lest anyone uh, finding him should kill him. And so God protects Cain and uh, by giving him uh, a mark so that nobody else uh, would kill him. And, uh, there, you know, why God does that, I don't know, but at this point in time in human history, he keeps vengeance for himself related uh, to Cain. Later in the law, he's going to establish a government. He's going to establish capital punishment and, and all uh, under Noah and then part of the law of Moses later. But he spares Cain's life now, uh, perhaps just to make him kind of a uh, living sermon walking around the world that the way of the transgressor is, is hard. And he certainly would be a sermon uh, of, of that. And, and then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and uh, he went uh, and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so the land of Nod is that place you go to about 20 minutes into every sermon right there. You just head right in there on that place. Listen, I'm trying to work with you tonight. Would you be, you'd be kind on things? So sometimes people hit it and then, then, they, then your people regroup, you know, for the other three hours and all. And uh, so, uh, listen, we don't, we are, we are, this isn't uh, sermonettes for Christianettes, as J. Vernon McGee uh, would say uh, on things. And so he went to the land of Nod. We don't know what it is except that it was the east of Eden uh, toward the Orient, probably not very far. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son by the name of Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So he becomes a city slicker. He's not going to be a farmer anymore. And he, uh, it gives us a sense that the population of the world is increasing. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here in, in a few minutes. But it's increasing enough that now uh, cities are being born. And so we've got the first city mentioned in the Bible 
uh, there in, in verse 17. And then to Enoch was uh, born uh, Erod, and Erod be, uh, begot uh, Mahujael, and Mahujael begot uh, Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. And so we, right there, one verse, we've gone through seven generations. So when we talk, look around, oh, here's the big question, where did Cain get his wife, right? Okay, there we go. Don't... <laughs> Don't let me miss the big questions. That's what the kids all ask, right? Where'd King get his wife? Now remember, as as we get into chapter 5, we're going to see people are living hundreds of years at that time. And it isn't going to be until after the flood that people start to live kind of the lifespans that that we live, you know, uh, 70 to 100 years or whatever it might uh, might be. And uh, so uh, people believe that uh, prior to the flood, because of this water canopy that was around the earth, no rain, but everything was watered by this water canopy, deep, dense kind of atmosphere that uh, the ultraviolet rays and the different things that would come, uh, you know, come through and, and begin to damage a body and age a body, that those things were being hindered and so people could live for uh, hundreds of years. That'd be something I remember. Remember when I turned 40 and uh, a, a dear family member said, oh, the, f- the 40s are the best. And uh, they were good. They were really good. I'm hoping the 50s are pretty good too on things. You start to get nickel and dime though. I've never heard anybody say the 60s are the best, uh, the 70s. But would it, wouldn't it be something to say, wow, the 500s are the best. You know, they were living longer. Or it might just be that after the flood, it was after the flood where the atmosphere changes and there's rain and all of this, that the lifespan of man diminished down into to what we know today. So it could be atmospheric changes, or it might be that God just did it and uh, just knew it wasn't good for us to be living that long and uh, began to move things around a little bit differently. But uh, Adam and Eve, uh, Adam lives... 900 plus years. We don't know how long Eve does, but probably comparable. You can have a lot of kids in 900 years. <laughs> you can have a lot of kids now. <laughs> Look at Mon Pa Kettle, all those kids. And, and uh, so they, uh, all these kids coming hundreds of years, then they, you know, can, are able to have children. They're having them for hundreds of years. I mean, you've got uh, all, all kinds of people. So he basically married one of his sisters. You said, wait a second, married a sister? Or what gives there? I mean, it, that, that, you can't be doing that. Doesn't the Bible say you can't do that? Yes, it does. God later made it a part of his law under Moses. But by then, uh, you know, at that time where he prohibits it uh, under the law uh, of, of Moses, uh, the, the gene pool is uh, considerably dirtier by that time. And uh, so, you know, you've got the dominant and recessive genes becoming a problem and all of that that weren't a case at the beginning. You're talking about the very beginning of man. The gene pool is very, very clean. Then later, as it becomes more and more interwoven and defiled, you can't have close relatives marrying one another. God then establishes the law of Moses related to that. It's kind of like if you, um, it's kind of like a river. And some of you have been to Israel and all, and you go all the way up into the north of Israel, and uh, there are three great sources to the Jordan River. And one of them is at uh, a place called Tel Dan. The water just comes right up out of the ground. It's snow melt from Mount Hermon. And, uh, and, and typically when you're taking a group in there, you get people that get down and they get the water and they drink in the whole thing and, and everything. They'll drink it there. 
and uh, the water's coming out of Tel Dan, Caesarea Philippi and all, and, and then it goes into the Jordan River. I've never seen anyone, when we get to the Jordan River, just before it goes into the Dead Sea, say, stop the bus, I want to get a drink of that water. It's so far away from the source that nobody even wants to drink it, but at the source it's okay. And what was true of a river today is true of, of the gene pool in, in those, those days. And so you've got the population uh, expanding in this way. And so seven generations, boom, right from Adam uh, to Lamech there in verse 19. And Lamech took for himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. So here we have uh, the first polygamist in the line of Cain uh, in the Bible. He, he uh, desecrates um, and ignores the institution of, of God, of marriage, one man and one uh, woman. But this is going to be characteristic of the descendants of Cain. And uh, Adabor uh, Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwelt in tents and have livestock. And so Jabal uh, comes on the scene. He's the first one to uh, get involved in animal husbandry and, uh, and uh, shepherding and, and this, this kind of, of a thing. And then his brother's name was Jubal. Uh, their other brother in verse 22 is Tubal. So I guess somebody had a bad memory. And and, uh, so the, I don't want to make this complicated. But anyway, his brother was Jubal in verse 21. And he was the father of those who played the harp. So we're talking about stringed instruments and the flute. So we're talking about uh, wind instruments. The arts began very, very early in, in, uh, in human history. And as for Zillah, she bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of craftsmen in bronze and iron and the sister of Tubal Cain was uh, Naamah and, and so Tubal Cain was a craftsman in bronze and iron first metal worker so we see mechanical skill developing so very early in human history you have the advancement of, of animal husbandry uh, of the arts of, of uh, music and all and then craftsmen, uh, craftsmanship and then uh, Lamech we're told in verse 23 said to his wives Ada and Zillah hear my voice wives of Lamech listen to my speech imagine hearing that every night <laughs> Get on with it. Say what you want to say. Enough with the melodramatics. Come on. It's hard enough being married to you. But anyway, everything's this big deal, you know. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. I've never tried it. Maybe I should, you know. <laughs> no, I don't think I'll try it. Wives of Lamech, uh, listen to my speech. And this is what he says. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech... 77 fold and so uh, you know here he comes in and and uh, Lamech kills a guy in a fight he writes a song about it so we have the first rapper uh, in the Bible uh, very very early in in human history but what we get a sense for is that violence is really increasing on the earth at this time bloodshed is increasing and then the pride of man is increasing too because uh, here uh, is uh, Lamech and 
And uh, if Cain was going to be avenged uh, sevenfold for someone doing harm to him, in other words, God was going to do that, Lamech says, uh, then I'll do harm to someone 77 times if they do any harm to me. No mention of God. He'll take care of that himself. And so uh, this attitude, a violent attitude, is increasing uh, in, in the world. So from this line of Cain, we see the... Um, a great advances in the arts, great advances in technology, but it lacks a concern for God that makes these advancements a blessing to God and a blessing to, to man, and it lacks a concern for God that keeps the advancement of men, advancements of men safe. And so you have this godless uh, advancement in, in human history through Cain. Even today, I mean, it's amazing uh, what man is accomplishing today on so many fronts. I can't believe what, what they can pack into a phone these days. I don't even know how to, I don't know how to operate one. I don't care. I don't want to or anything like that. But I am amazed that some human being can devise technology so small that you can have half the world in your pocket when you're walking around. I mean, it's amazing the age that we live in. When I was a kid, oh, <laughs> spare me. Sound like Lamech, don't I? <laughs> but when I was when I was a kid, I mean, we had a little black and white TV that was about this big. We all huddled around it, and when it broke, that was it. I, I don't remember a single uh, uh, person in my elementary school, a single family that had two cars. You waited till dad got home with that car, and then you did in the evening what you needed to do with that car. I mean, we have stuff like you can't believe it. One of the nice things about being a little bit older is you realize you can survive without uh, the things that are, are considered necessities or, or, or branded that way as necessities uh, today. And, and uh, uh, so, but you think about the technology. I, I read an article in, in the Medesta B probably about four weeks ago. And it was on the editorial page. And there was a man who wrote an article about the fact that um, uh, noticed that so many people around the world were turning to religion in great numbers. Uh, and uh, in all, he didn't name, name any particular religion, but returning to religion and particularly fundamentalist varieties of, of religion. And he, the, the, it was an editorial, and his, uh, the position that he took is, is that people, when they're afraid of the advancement of technology, they then run into the past to things that are safe, and so to run to religion at a time of great technological advances is to run for safety on the part of people who are uncomfortable with the technological advances. And I thought to myself as I read it, this man uh, cannot be a deeply religious person. I don't know of a single person that is afraid of technology in and of itself. I think the, pe the reason that people are running to God in great numbers is that we are seeing unbelievable advancement in technology at the very time we are seeing a, uh, a, a tremendous departure from a concern for God 
in his ways and a presence of godliness in the human condition. That is the concern, not the advancement of technology, but the loss of the other at the same time. Because you lose that, you lose safe boundaries for the technology and the things that we develop. Because now we'll use them however we see fit. And so, so many good things, you see, where they're, they're invented and they're produced and they do a great thing. And then you see those things, then that technology get hijacked for evil. And when you see good and godliness on the wane in, in the human condition worldwide, that's what's concerning people. And, and, uh, and so here you have great technological advance, uh, but you have a departure of godliness, great, great concern. It's going to lead to a flood. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore uh, a, a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me. Uh, that's why she uh, names him Seth. His name means appointed instead of Abel whom Cain killed. And so they now have uh, a boy uh, named Seth. They have great hopes for him that he'll take the place of Abel. Abel being a godly and a righteous young man. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. And uh, he, called his, uh, he called him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, that nobody had been praying to God or calling on the name of the Lord up to this time. What it means is they start to do it collectively. So Cain has killed Abel. Abel represents a godly line. Cain represents an ungodly line. Seth comes on the scene, and he is going to be uh, another godly line in the human uh, condition of, of things. And, uh, and as a characteristic of his descendants, people begin to get together now to pray together, to call upon the Lord together, to worship the Lord together, because the world's getting more and more evil at this time. And so people realize, wait a second, I like my own prayer life, I like my own relationship with God, but in the, in the light of increasing evil, I need to have... Uh, the support of other people who love the Lord in the midst of this violence and this uh, blasphemy against God and advancement of technology for no good and, and all. And, and so they, uh, they take and they begin to unite together in, in this and begin to, to worship together. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor, senior pastor of this church, one of several pastors uh, here. But this is my church, <laughs> not, not mine that I own it, but this is where I go to church. Uh, this is where I fellowship. This is where uh, I'm encouraged in the things of the Lord. This is where I get to pray with other people in the things of the Lord. And I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of that, for all of us to do that together. The godly line of Seth needs that. We can't uh, uh, live this thing that God has called us to in the midst of the wickedness that surrounds us without being uh, together. Now, very quickly through chapter 5. Remember that whole sermonette thing? Okay. And, and uh, mm-hmm. okay. There. All right. Christianette. <clears throat> this is the book of the genealogy of 
uh, Adam. And in that day God created man and, and he made him in the likeness of God. And he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So a recap of the creation. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son uh, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So he's 130 years old uh, when he gives birth to Seth. But listen, he's already had Cain and Abel, but they're not mentioned because this is going to be the lineage uh, from Adam through Seth. Do you know that every single one of you in this room is a descendant of Seth? Uh, we all know that we're descendants of Adam and Eve, but we are also, every one of us in this room, a descendant of Seth, and every one of us in this room is a descendant of Noah because it is only his lineage that survived in the flood. So we're talking about family here. Looking to go through the family album here. And, and so uh, here is, is Seth. In the genealogies that God gives through the Bible, the genealogies don't mention every family member. They just mention significant uh, people in the lineage that are important to the story, whatever it is that God is saying in this particular passage. What's important to God in this particular passage is the lineage of Seth. So all other sons and daughters, many of them doubtless born, some that we know of, others that we don't know of, and, and the focus is on Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. <laughs> kind of sad. It's sad. I get, it's like all weepy, but it's sad to me. When you think about, I mean, it's the end of an era with the death of Adam in human history. He's the only one that saw that, saw the perfection, the Garden of Eden with, with Eve, and then saw the fall of this, and, and then now he's, he's gone. And I mean, what he must have had to live with in that consciousness that it used to be this. See, all we know is fallenness. We don't know the Garden. We have no basis of comparison. It's probably good. It won't, doesn't torment us. We just know how to survive here in all of this. By the grace of God, do more than survive, prosper. But, but he knew both things. And, then, and he knew his place and the one becoming far less than the other. And then now he goes to be with the Lord. And he died is, is how it's referred to uh, there. In chapter 5, that phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, is going to be repeated eight times in the chapter. Ever uh, walk through a cemetery as a kid? We used to do that as a kid. You'd have a Saturday, nothing to do. I mean, we weren't too smart or whatever, but we searched out every corner of our hometown, and we'd ride our bikes to the cemetery, and you'd look at these big stones and go and see, wow, how important was this person that they'd have something that's like eight feet tall and so ornate, and we'd read the names, and then you'd figure out the dates and how long they lived and this, and, you know, trying to figure out lives. Uh, 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 on the basis of the little story that's told there in, in, uh, in all of that. And in chapter 5, the, this chapter answers a very, very basic question that any thinking person wonders about in this world, and that is, why do we die? And over and over again you see, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And, and we'll get to the answer of that in just a couple minutes. So he, he dies. And then Seth lives 105 years. He begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 800 and 
um, uh, seven years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 99 uh, years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot uh, Mahala. This sounds like a fish you order in Hawaii, doesn't it? Uh, Mahala Lalalel. And uh, after he begot this, uh, because they called him Ma after a while on things. And, and uh, after he begot him, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Canaan were 910 years. And he died. And Mahashahamah lived uh, 65 years, begot Jared. And uh, after he begot Jared, uh, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of this man were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years. He begot Enoch. And uh, this is a different Enoch than the one, uh, the descendant of Cain. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived uh, uh, 65 years and begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Whoa, 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 wait a second. Stop the presses. (laughs) There's an interruption in the march of death through the human condition. And so here, you know, here you've got this thing, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then all of a sudden, here we come to Enoch, and uh, he doesn't die. He simply disappears when it says God took him in verse 24. It means to transfer to uh, another place. And, and so he simply disappears, walks with God, and, and, and then he was not because God took him. Took him to heaven without dying. And so in this whole march of death and everything, death, what's being communicated here is that death can be interrupted. There is a victory over death, but that it is found in a walk with God. All all pointing to uh, the Savior that would come and allow us to have that, that walk with God. And so Enoch comes and he... He interrupts the whole progression, and because God takes him to another place and does it just uh, immediately prior to uh, the flood, he's taken into heaven, and uh, he's a picture of the church being taken into heaven, those who walk with the Lord uh, being raptured prior to the tribulation period, uh, sparing us uh, from, from death. And then Methuselah, Lived, uh, Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. That's the oldest guy in human history. 969 years. But without, without an answer to death, it's going to get everybody. No matter how long you live, it's going to catch up to you. Without that interruption, 
And so, but he's the oldest one, 969 years, but even he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us, and his name means comfort, concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so, uh, as Lamech, the, the, Lamech becomes famous for the child that he has by the name of Noah, but there's a hope attached to Noah. The world, as we'll see next week, is getting more and more wicked all the time and here as Lamech names this boy it is in the hope that things will turn around in some way in, in the life uh, span of this child and, and maybe even through this child which is exactly what's going to happen so after he begot Noah Lamech lived 500 and 95 years and had sons and daughters and so all the days uh, of Lamech were 777 uh, years and he died and Noah was 500 uh, years old and Noah begot Shem, Ham and Japheth and every single one of us in this room is a descendant of either Shem, Ham or Japheth. Sometimes people can ask related to this whole biblical account of the creation of man and the fall of man and, and, and the, the history uh, of the Bible concerning all of these things, and they can ask and say, uh, how do we know that uh, the Garden of Eden was real? How do we know that we were once created the way that we were, that Adam and Eve, that we're descendants of Adam and Eve? How do we know that the fall occurred? Is there any kind of uh, proof for this uh, this kind of thing. How can I know that I'm really a descendant of Adam and Eve? And one of the interesting uh, things, and when, when someone would bring that kind of a question to uh, the Apostle Paul, he answers it actually when he writes to uh, the church at Corinth when he declares, he doesn't do any pie charts or get real complicated or philosophical or anything like that. He just says, in Adam, all die. All die. What is the evidence that you and I are a descendant of Adam and Eve? It's all around us, all around the world, every single day. And it's called death. And, and death is, is the rope that you just tie that right around your little old ankle and you take it down through thousands of years of history and that rope takes you right into the Garden of Eden. We're all descendants of it because of death. We just accept death in the culture. So we know that people die, we accept death, we um, accept it, uh, we may ask questions about uh, what happens after death, but the question that the Bible addresses in addition to all of those things is, how did death originate? Why should I believe anyone about their postulating about what happens after death if you can't tell me why death is here? Why is it a part of the human condition in human history? You answer that for me, and I'll listen to you about life after death and your ideas about it. You've got to have an explanation for death. The explanation for death is the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. A second evidence for the fact that we are fallen creatures in God's account of, of uh, the Garden of Eden is, is uh, historical and, and absolutely happened in human history. Paul writes of it in Romans chapter 2 and it's the existence of conscience. That every single human being in this world has a conscience. We have an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. No matter what culture you go to in the whole world, there is an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong. Certain things are always right and certain things are always wrong, no matter how diverse the culture. 
Murder is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. Not murdering is always right. Not stealing is always right. Being honest is always right. There's a uniform culture in man all around the world. The interesting thing about our conscience, though, is that our conscience is higher than our practice. No one lives up to the height of their conscience. We all live lower than our understanding of right and wrong. And what Paul says that that reveals about us is that our conscience does not have its origin in man. It has its origin in God. Not in us. And this great gulf that exists between this high standard of what I know to be right and wrong and the life that man actually lives every day in this world, that great gulf between the two is a testimony like a blinking neon sign throughout the whole world, all day, all night. You are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. You were created for something greater than this and you have fallen from that. You are not moving upward. You you were something greater have fallen from it again I, I tell you the first three chapters of the book of Genesis are so satisfying in terms of the answers to the great questions in in life and and so here is this death this death this death this death so early in it and all of it reveals us to be descendants of uh, Adam and Eve all of these things testifying to the truthfulness of the Word of God why these genealogies here and why <laughs> chapter 5 this long genealogy in order to fast forward us through 1600 years of history and, and get us to the flood. He sets the table for the flood here. But God said, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, He spoke about a Savior, a Messiah, who would come of the seed of a woman. How can I know that Jesus, when He comes, came of the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, without having a genealogy? He just doesn't give us facts there without then giving us the evidence for our faith. So He supplies the genealogy in his word that is out, going to outlive the heavens and the earth. One, one final thing, and then we'll close with this. Sometimes people wonder about how is it because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. But Moses isn't born during this period in human history. How in the world could Moses, you know, have written the book of Genesis without being there? How did the record survive the flood? It's interesting when you look at the genealogy here, Adam was still alive when Methuselah was born. Methuselah was still alive when Noah was born. Noah lived to be a contemporary of Terah, who was the father of Abraham. So you have just two human lives because of the longevity of, of life here that links Adam and Abraham, Methuselah and Noah. It's a span of, of 2,000 years. And, and so very easy for the account to move just through a handful of people preserved by the Holy Spirit and given to us or God could have simply done it independent of man with Moses. I don't really know, but... Um, Sometimes people look at it and say, this must have been a terribly hard thing to do. No, he just had to preserve it through two or three people in order for us to have it here today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
the worship team comes forward.